May 30th is Memorial Day in the United States, a day in which America honors her warriors, and my book, Immortal Valor, is out now. The book chronicles these immortal heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book, available in stores and online, to discover more as we honor America's warriors this Memorial Day. It was a tremendous fight at long odds, but the British held on very well. And it was interesting, and this this is one of the reasons I love the war diaries, I love documents like that, is because you find little nuggets that put everything together. The keeper of the war diary wrote at the very end when they knew they'd won the battle, he said, England first innings score, which is a cricket analogy. You know, it's one of those small statements that actually says a great deal. An excerpt from today's guest, whose new book details the India-Burma campaigns of World War II. Author Chris Kolakowski is here to discuss Nations in the Balance, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spirit YouTube channel with bonus video material from the podcast plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. Welcome back. Today's guest spent his career interpreting and preserving American military history with the National Park Service, New York State Government, the Rensselaer County New York Historical Society, the Civil War Preservation Trust, and other organizations. He has written and spoken on various aspects of military history from 1775 to the present. His current book is called Nations in the Balance, the India-Burma Campaigns, December 1943, to August 1944. And author Chris Kolakowski joins us now. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. And uh, I noted in, uh, in your bio that you have written three Civil War books and actually contribute to a Civil War blog, which is one of my interests. Is this a passion of, of yours, the Civil War? It always has been. I, I'm a student of all military history from 1775 to the present, but I actually got my start as a historian for the National Park Service in the Fredericksburg battlefields, the Fredericksburg area battlefields, and uh, have also worked at Perryville Battlefield in Kentucky and and done a lot with the Civil War and still do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it gave me my first opportunity to really be a military historian. So it's always kind of, you know how you get kind of the, the, the thing that gets you your start professionally always has kind of a special place in your heart. Sure. Um, but over the last few years, I've been able to, uh, probably the last 10 or 15 years now, I've really been able to explore my interest and f- in other areas and express that and explore some of those more, you know, in, in a more professional setting than just, uh, you know, having books on my bookshelf and that sort of thing. Right, right. One more thing about the Civil War I mentioned before we get into your book is my great-grandfather, Thomas Weber Child, served at the Battle of um, Fredericksburg and uh, with the 18th Massachusetts. And oh, he, wow. Yeah. He was, I don't know if he was, the word is awarded, but cited for gallantry for charging the heights twice. And uh, it's an amazing story that I discovered just by doing genealogy. But uh, just an amazing battle. It, it is. It was a, we used to do staff rides in professional development for the Marine Corps and for other military, the Army and, and a variety of other military groups. And it was revealing and sobering 
those the types of discussions that we would get in and, and particularly when they considered the army of the potomac and the charges against marie's heights and some of the decision making particularly on the federal side um that might be a whole talk for a whole other time rob absolutely. but uh yeah there's endless lessons definitely from those campaigns absolutely but uh let's get into your book your current book and the india burma campaigns aren't well known generally is that what motivated you to look into this into this these campaigns it was one of the reasons i've i've always been one of those people even when i was writing about the civil war didn't want to produce another book on gettysburg or another book on d-day or something like that i always want to try and find kind of the lesser known areas and try and plumb those uh, mine those whatever call it what you will but uh and that was one of the reasons is this area particularly from an american perspective is not a very well-known front of the 16 million americans that served in world war ii about a quarter million ever served in the china burma india theater mm. most of the forces that were there most of the troops that were there were either chinese japanese or british and by that i include the indians and what today is india pakistan and other forces of the british empire so this theater looms much larger in those national memories than it does in America. But to be honest with you, particularly because of the impacts that these campaigns have on the future uh, after World War II, the future of Asia, you know, it should loom a lot larger. Right. Um, and so that was one of the attractions. Plus, there's some dramatic personalities. It's it's some really incredible stories. Um, in some cases, my job was just to get out of the way and let the story tell itself. And so, you know, you put all those together and it's and it was, you know, the, the, it grabbed me with a strong grip and said, you, you need to write. This. And uh, building on that, is there some story that surprised you or stood out in your mind about the campaigns in this theater? Probably the biggest story that stood out in my mind actually was revealed in the because uh, one of the surprises actually this my project was i benefited from the fact that at the 75th anniversary the british declassified the war diaries and many of the official reports of the campaign that were supposed to be held in classification for 100 years hmm. and so that was a resource that i had that a lot of other people didn't have and the two things that surprised me out of the war diaries, two stories. The first one was how they regarded the battle in the Arakan in February 1944, known as the Admin Box, which ended up being the first British victory over the Japanese in the, on the land in World War II. And it was a tremendous fight at long odds, but the British held on very well. And it was interesting, and this, this is one of the reasons I love the war diaries, I love documents like that, is because you find little nuggets that put everything together. The keeper of the war diary wrote at the very end when they knew they'd won the battle, he said, England first innings score, which is a cricket analogy. And it basically is, hey, we, you know, and I, I think some, a detail like that's, you know, really says so much about mentality, about what's going on and how they choose to, you know, it's one of those small statements that actually says a great deal. The other thing that really surprised me was the infall airlift because the war diaries, I got the war diaries of the quartermasters that were receiving everything, all the supplies coming into Imphal. There was, the Japanese had besieged and for about 85 days, besieged the fourth army corps in and around the Imphal plain. And a lot of times in the histories, people had, oh, the airlift was working, the, you know, the airlift was getting the supplies in and assumed that everything was okay. But if you really start plumbing those war diaries, for the particularly the quartermasters, what they're writing, 
you realize it was a much closer run thing than people think. Oh, I see. There's there's some details and some statements in there um, about, for example, toward the end, they're running out of oil. They basically have to fly in oil every day other because they are almost out of it in terms of stocks. Their reserves have been gone down. The other thing is day by day, they have a tabulation of how many flights come in. And you can see when the weather's bad because the flights are very, very few. And that's a problem, particularly when the monsoon starts, because they need about 150 landings in infall per day. Some days they get it, some days they don't. And one of these days I need to hand this to a statistician and get them to do some deeper analysis. Sure. But you can see the trends, and it was it was a lot closer than people think. Touch and go. Yeah, very much. I hope you're enjoying this episode. We've got some great guests coming up in May. Kicking off the month, author Martin Dugard returns to Point of the Spear to talk about his new book with Bill O'Reilly, Killing the Killers. Next, a conversation with Tom Clavin about the great sea battle of the Civil War in his new book, To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth. And later in May, Jared Frederick returns to Point of the Spear to discuss Fierce Valor, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. One of the, the core elements of the book is his written correspondence with Dick Winters because that truly gave us an insider perspective, uh, perspectives in which they were very candid with each other about what they did and what they did not do during the Second World War. Uh, and so that was one of the really fascinating things is that you, you saw these older men coming to terms with their celebrity, celebrity that they were sometimes uncomfortable with. All this and much more coming up in May on Point of the Spear. May 30th is Memorial Day in the United States, a day in which America honors her warriors, and my book, Immortal Valor, is out now. The book chronicles these immortal heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book, available in stores and online, to discover more as we honor America's warriors this Memorial Day. Now back to the conversation. The outcome of these battles, you say, it changed the course of history in Asia for decades to come. How did it change the history of Asia? That's a great question. And uh, it, it speaks directly to the relevance of these stories. Here we are 77 years in the future telling these stories. It does it in a couple of ways. First of all, Japan, it ends Japan's bid for trying to conquer India, trying to throw the British out of India but also ends Japan's bid for domination of what we know as Southeast Asia, which, by the way, that term comes out of World War II. So you've got that. You've also got um, the Chinese Civil War by the fact that China was blockaded for so long and the Japanese were able to hold back uh, General Stilwell, the Marauders, and his Chinese army um, for another year throughout 1944 meant that the Chinese army didn't have as many supplies as they needed for the 1945 campaigns and were not as strong as they needed when the Chinese Civil War broke out in earnest after World War II. The biggest thing, though, is the direct line that you can draw from these campaigns through the partition of India and the, the end of the British Empire in, in Asia. Hmm. After the war, there had been, there had been when the Jap Japanese marched into India, they took along with them what was known as the Indian National Army. It was about 7,000, 8,000 Indian soldiers that had been recruited from the Indian soldiers that had been captured at Singapore in 1942. And they were led by a guy named Subhas Chandra Bose, 
who was a noted pre-war politician. He'd, he was a friends with Gandhi and Nehru and the Indian National Congress Party. Um, fallen out with them because they wanted to be nonviolent. He preferred a violent, uh, more violent tactics. Bose becomes the spiritual leader for the INA. And when they go, accompany, they expect a lot of the Indian soldiers defending him fall in Kohima to desert. They don't. Hmm. At the end of the war, the British capture the leaders. Bose gets killed in a plane crash, but many of his subordinates are captured. The British try them in New Delhi. And most of the Indians hadn't ever really heard about the INA. But when they hear about the trials, they say, hey, wait a minute. They're Indian patriots fighting for a free India. And it lights a fuse that leads directly to partition in 1947, the creation of India and Pakistan, with all that that means up to today in the conflicts to up to today. And when India goes, a year later, Burma becomes independent, Sri Lanka this former Ceylon becomes independent, and it's it's a major domino in the dominoes of, of decolonization and the end of the British Empire in the East. And then lastly, the you know, most people when they think of US involvement in this region, they tend to think of it starts in the early 60s with the advisors in Vietnam and the Air Force in Vietnam, things like that. Right. It actually starts with General Stilwell in 1942. And when he shows up to Burma to aid the British and ultimately gets kicked out and then tries to fight his way back in. Um, but from 1942 until the fall of Saigon, there's an unbroken U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia. And you can trace some of that and how the U.S. becomes a dominant influencer in this era. In this era through It starts with these campaigns, particularly because the Americans don't have a lot on the ground, but they have bringing the supplies. They have a lot of air power. And if you think about, for example, Vietnamization in the early 70s with the Easter Offensive, most of the troops are not American. But the support units are American. The air power is American. Just like in 1972, you see that you see similar trends playing out in 1942, 43, 44, and even into 1945. So, yeah, definite, definite influence. In your research, did you discover some larger than life characters involved in this uh, in these campaigns? How much time do we have? <laughs> I'll, I'll be quite honest with you, Rob. The personalities in these campaigns. That's one of the things that makes these campaigns compelling is not just where they're, where they're fought, which is incredibly difficult terrain um, and what they did, but it's the personalities. Right. Um, you've got a member of the British royal family, a cousin of the royal family, who's the allied supreme commander, Lord Lewis Mountbatten. Sure. Um, you know, and all that, all that he gets into. General Stilwell, uh, the senior American during this period, Vinegar Joe, um, yeah, going out in the field with his troops. Yeah, tell us, tell the audience a little bit about Stillwell. Joe Stillwell is a, I'm glad you asked. Joe Stillwell is a forgotten um, American general, um, but he shouldn't be. He was um, the Army's senior Asian expert in 1941 when Pearl Harbor is bombed, when we, U.S. enters World War II. He'd been military attache to uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. And in 1942, he's appointed Supreme Commander of the China-Burma-India Theater. Um, and will basically spend the next two years trying to help China break the blockade of China and provide supplies to China, either by air over the Himalayas or ultimately by land over a road that he will build as his armies advance um, to keep them in the war and help them defeat the Japanese on the mainland of Asia. Um, he's part diplomat. He's part soldier. 
Um, and as one of his colleagues, William Slim, who's another compelling figure and probably the titan of these campaigns, will say, um, at the end of the day, the victory in North Burma was due to Joe Stilwell, was due to General Stilwell. And so if, if you're going to study World War II in Asia, um, General Stilwell's name comes up very quickly in the conversation. He dies of cancer in 1946, just about a year, year and a half after the war is over. Never really gets a chance to write his memoirs. Um, some of his diaries, some of his papers have been published. But, uh, and then it was a really good biography of him by Barbara Tuckman back in 1972 that still stands up. Um, but Joe Stilwell deserves a lot more attention and a lot more respect than he's gotten in recent years. Were there commanders on the other side of the, of the battle line that sort of stood out to you? There were two Japanese that stood out to me. Um, the, there was the commander opposite Stilwell, a general named Tanaka, who was commanding the 18th Chrysanthemum Division, which is a big deal because the Chrysanthemum is the symbol of the Japanese royal family. So if you get your formation nicknamed for that, you know, that's your nickname, that's a big deal. Yeah. And they were outstanding troops. And if you study the campaign, and that's one of the things I was able to mine some of the records, including an oral history from General Tanaka, his his skill, but also his modesty and his just steadiness, you know, particularly facing overwhelming troops, an overwhelming amount of allied troops coming at him for months. Um, and what he was able to do was amazing. Mm-hmm. The other the other one was the mastermind of the invasion of India, a guy named Mutaguchi Renya. And um, his last name is Mutaguchi. I, I say that the Japanese way. Mutaguchi had, um, he, he, <laughs> He is somewhat the anti-Tanaka. He's got a, an exalted opinion of himself. Um, and he actually writes in his diary before the invasion of India. He says, I was at the beginning. I was, I was at the beginning of the war with China. I was present at the victory of Singapore, where he commanded the 18th Division. And now I have a chance to finish the British Empire by invading India. And it's his, he masterminds the invasion of India. He masterminds the attack that will result in the Battle of Imphal and Kohima. But it is also through some of his faulty planning and faulty assumptions, including that the British would turn and run at the first, basically the first shot. When that's proven to be false, he doesn't really have a plan B. And ultimately, what it comes down to is actually he, he has one of his subordinates issue an or, issue orders and say, um, when you are killed, fight with your spirit. So basically, his his answer is to just attack harder and throw more throw more attacks at the problem and basically fights his army to a frazzle and presides over the greatest defeat in the history of the Imperial Japanese army. Um, And so he is a he's a his hubris. He gets paid. He gets he gets his comeuppance at the end. And a lot of people have to suffer as a result. Yeah, certainly sounds like it. This book is out now. Have you got other projects in the pipeline that you're working on? I do. I'm under contract also with Casemate, um, who did this book. I'm under contract to do a book on Simon Bolivar Buckner Jr. as commander of 10th Army. And that should be out in probably 20, knock on wood, 2024. Oh, okay. And can you give us a preview of, of that book? General, it, it, this, the cornerstone of it is General Buckner's diaries, which have never been fully published from 1944 to 45, when he was commander of U.S. 10th Army, and most people know him as the battle com- commander at the Battle of Okinawa, but he commanded 10th Army before that and was involved in some of the planning and some of the decisions of 
Pacific strategy in late 1944. And he attended, for example, the, the daily situation conferences at Pearl Harbor and Chester Nimitz's headquarters. So some of the gossip, some of the comments about how the war is going, um, visiting battlefields shortly after the Battle of Guam, the Battle of Leyte were, were over, and some of his comments about that. He's a really interesting, a really interesting observer, and it provides a really interesting light into a part of the Pacific War that is not, uh, that hasn't really had had light shown on it before, and that's all before we get to the Battle of Okinawa. Wow. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about you know who he was. The meat of it's going to be the diaries, and then some at the end of kind of an assessment of of his command and how he did. Sounds like a great book, and definitely one to look for. We're talking about your current book, and that's called Nations in the Balance. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Rob. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. We've got some great guests coming up in May. Kicking off the month, author Martin Dugard returns to Point of the Spear to talk about his new book with Bill O'Reilly, Killing the Killers. Next, a conversation with Tom Clavin about the great sea battle of the Civil War in his new book, To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth. And later in May, Jared Frederick returns to Point of the Spear to discuss Fierce Valor, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. One of the, the core elements of the book is his written correspondence with Dick Winters because that truly gave us an insider perspective, uh, perspectives in which they were very candid with each other about what they did and what they did not do during the Second World War. Uh, and so that was one of the really fascinating things is that you, you saw these older men coming to terms with their celebrity, celebrity that they were sometimes uncomfortable with. That's all next month. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.